together. Thank you, friends, for joining us here in the theater this morning. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus again today. Chapter 7 is where we'll start. I think it's page about 45 or so in these red Bibles that we'll hand out. Raise your hand if you need one. We'll put some of the text on the screen, but not all of it, so it'll be helpful to see it in context. If you like a Bible, keep your hand up. Exodus chapter 7. Or your phones. Everyone's like, I have it right here. And I can check the news. Good. <clears throat> so here's where we've been. We're asking the question, how do we, how do we get free? How do we actually step into freedom? Um, and, and here are some of the ways to experience freedom that we have identified in the last couple weeks. First of all, there is, there is the need for a, there's a critical context for freedom that's been identified, and that is the context of community. We identified that, iso- that individualism is often um, not helpful, that privacy is often not helpful if you really want to move towards freedom. Community is the critical context for freedom, a place where you can belong, a place where you can be known, and a place where you can be told the truth, right, by people that you're learning to trust. So community is a critical context. We've also identified a critical conviction, which is believe that God is for you. It's really hard to rescue somebody if they don't believe you're for them, right? It's really hard to follow somebody if you're not convinced that they they want what's best for you. And so the critical conviction, if we're going to step into freedom, is that we believe that God is for us. And then we identified like a, I would put it like this, there's a, a, a cooperation, there's a cooperative effort that is also critical, and that is that we engage with the Holy Spirit in the process of healing. The way we put it a couple of weeks ago was that we need to do the hard work of mending our broken spirits. We love stories of instant healing, and some of us have stories of instant healing. Many of us are being held down by the... um, by the the derivative of death that actually requires a process of healing to to, um, receive freedom from. And so there's this process that needs to to, um, be engaged in. We need to do the hard work of mending our spirits, and we need to join others in doing the hard work of mending their spirits as well. Those two go hand in hand. It's not first get healed and then heal others. It would be nice if it was that clean, but it's not. And in fact, one of the best ways to heal your own or to mend your own spirit is to, is to partner with somebody who's got a similar wound as you. Maybe you're just a few steps ahead of them in terms of the process, but you're helping them, and in helping them, it, it helps you. Today, uh, I want to invite us to refuse counterfeit liberators. How do we get free? Well, we've got to refuse counterfeit Liberators. Here's a little background in case you haven't been with us the last couple uh, weeks. We're studying the book of Exodus in order to better understand the freedom that is accomplished at Easter. Okay? We're looking at Exodus, which is the main event of the Old Testament, as a prequel to Easter, which is the main event of the New Testament. If you want to understand the main event, you need to find out what came first, what led to the main events. Okay? So the main event of the whole Bible is the resurrection of Jesus. But the main event of the Old Testament, which prefigures the resurrection of Jesus, serves as a prequel in in some sense, is the Exodus, which is the freeing of slaves after 400 years um, in Egypt. They go, as Hebrew slaves move from bondage to freedom in the story of the Exodus. 
Six chapters into the book of Exodus, however, the free the slaves effort is going really poorly. It's not working out at all. Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, could not be less concerned about Moses. He could not be less interested in Moses' claim that God has appeared to him and has told him to set the slaves free. Pharaoh, in fact, is so put off by Moses' suggestion that the Hebrew slaves should have a three-day weekend after, oh, say, 400 years of working, that he makes it actually harder for the Hebrew slaves. He increases their work. He makes it more, in fact, just infuriatingly impossible. This, of course, makes the Hebrew slaves very upset, but not at Pharaoh. Who are they upset at? Moses, who is supposed to be the one setting them free. In fact, they say this to Moses. They say, you've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And at this point, frankly, Moses is a very uninspiring leader. He does not have a lot of self-confidence. He's continually telling God he is not the man for the job. He seems very shaken. No one believes Moses. No one except his brother believes Moses. And Moses is ready to quit. He says to God, you have not rescued your people at all. We're not even seeing incremental rescuing here, God. We're not even seeing partial rescue. I can't point to a single thing that shows me that anything has actually been accomplished in this effort. You haven't rescued your people at all. So let's join the story now in chapter 7, verse 7. And I want to just point this out to my seasoned brothers and sisters. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh, all right? Don't forget that. That's good news. I'm going to hang on to that in 30 or 40 years. I'm just going to hang on to that. Continuing with verse 8 of chapter 7, second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus chapter 8, I mean chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Now, this has happened before, twice. It's happened before, twice. When in chapter four, when Moses is hearing this voice come out of this burning bush and the voice says, I'm God and you need to go free your people out of Egypt. Moses says, how do I know it's you? And God says, what's in your hand? And Moses says, it's a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. And then God says, pick it up. And Moses is like, picks up by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. And this apparently helps Moses believe that God is the one talking to him. Then at the end of the chapter, Moses goes back to Egypt. He's been away from Egypt for 40 years, goes back to Egypt. He meets with the leaders of the Hebrew people, and he does the same sign for them. Takes his staff, throws it down, becomes a snake, reaches back down, picks it up, and it becomes a staff again. And this same sign apparently helps the leaders of the Hebrews believe that it is God who has asked or was told Moses to set the people free. That was chapter four. Things go really poorly in chapter five and chapter six, as I've explained. This rescue effort is going nowhere. So in chapter seven, God says, all right, it's time to pull out the signs. We've tried talking Nobody's listening. We've tried diplomacy, right? Now let's pull out the guns because we just got to up it a level. So verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became 
a snake. Remember, this has happened before. It's happened twice before. This is the sign that helped Moses believe. This is the sign that helped the leaders of Israel believe. This sign was proof, guys. This was like, okay, it's legitimate. I didn't make this up. I wasn't on some trip when I saw the burning bush, right? This was, it's happened before. It's happened twice. So Moses looks at Aaron, gives him the little nod. He's like, do the snake thing. So Aaron takes his staff, throws it on the ground, becomes a snake on the ground. And they're like, take that. Pharaoh, what are you going to do now? Pharaoh, there's a snake on the ground. Look at verse 11. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. Can you imagine what Moses is thinking at this point. I mean, I didn't remember this, and as I told you, I read through this in Lent, and I read this part, and I was just like, I mean, I was almost grieved for Moses at this point. What is he, what has got to be going through this man's mind at this point? Have you ever been in a negotiation, you're buying a car or something, and, and you've got this, you got this one little Peace. You're saving for the end, right? Because this is going to just drop the deal. It's going to, this is it. And you save it to the end only to realize that the guy you're negotiating also has one of those like final pieces and, 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 and it's better than yours. Or maybe you're in a debate or you're in an argument with somebody and you have this thing and you say like, well, I, I didn't want to have to bring this up. But then you go ahead and you bring it up because you feel like this is going to be the thing that like cinches the argument for you only to find out that, oh, they have a little thing they didn't want to bring up either, but they're bringing, and then it's better than yours. And it kind of leaves you just stunned. Like this was the thing that had me convinced. This was the thing that fixed it for me, but it's not, <laughs> it's not actually fixing it. So how is Moses feeling as he and his brother stand there in shepherd's clothes, in front of the most powerful man in the world, with the most powerful military in the world, who has just summoned magicians who by some freak, weird, secret art are able to duplicate the signs given to Moses and Aaron for what? As evidence that it is actually God who called them to do this crazy thing in the first place. Now there's snakes all over the floor, right? There's all kinds of snakes on the floor. Everybody's staff has become a snake. What does it mean when they can do what God can do? What does it mean when the thing you think only God can do this, this was, the, this was how God showed me that he was real, and then you see it duplicated by that guy, by that guy, by that guy, by that guy. I mean, I really sympathize with Moses here. The man is trying to do what God told him to do. And I imagine, I imagine Moses goes back to God this night and says, you said do the snake thing. And, and, and I thought that was something special. I believed you because of the snake thing. 
and the elders of the Hebrews believed you because of the snake thing. Did you know they can do the snake thing too? Like it's nothing special apparently. They can all do the snake thing. There were snakes all over the ground. God, the snake thing didn't work. Now, a couple times every year, I hear something like this. And in 2020, I heard this a lot. I heard this from more than a few people. What did I hear? This isn't working for me. Or this isn't working for me anymore. Some variation of that sentence. Church isn't working for me anymore. Christianity used to work for me. It doesn't work for me anymore. I don't feel like God is working for me anymore. And and it's usually, by the time this statement comes to me, it's usually more than a statement of disappointment. It is a statement of disappointment, but it, it also is more than that. Usually it's a statement of shifting belief about the source of salvation is ultimately what it's about. It's, it's that my conviction about where I should look for rescue is, is changing. It's shifting to something else. This isn't working for me. And when we say that, we don't usually mean just that it's not working. We usually mean, and this is. Or I think this will. So in just the last year, because I've heard so many of these statements and I've heard them from several of you, and I've heard them from several of people, people not in the, the church community here, and I'm not trying to call anybody out. This is, in fact, I honor the honesty with which people share transparently with me about, about spiritual struggles. I completely honor that. And, and I'm grateful that people feel comfortable sharing this. But because I'm hearing more about the struggle, about what isn't working, I've started to ask, what is? Or what do you think will work? And here are some of the things people have pointed to. I've identified the top three from the last year. What will work or what feels like it will work? Some kind of exercise program. Some kind of group, usually a community exercise program. CrossFit, yoga, some sort of an exercise boot camp with others. Feels like that works. Feels like it's working. Feels like it'll work. A second thing, some kind of social activism or increased political involvement. Like jumping in with a cause, jumping in with some movement, getting something done. Or a third thing that people have identified is, is some kind of business pursuit or shift toward, I'm going to put my focus toward like developing resources for my family, assets, a vacation home, a second business, building wealth. What's working? What do you think will work? I would summarize it, some sort of physical or emotional health effort, some sort of advocacy or justice effort, or some sort of let's increase the power or the affluence quotient effort, which makes sense to me because these are real things. They seem real. They feel real. They seem to make a real difference. There's an obvious payoff You feel great, you look great, you're making a real difference, you're not just talking about it, you're out there doing it, right? And this is the new car, or this is the vacation, I can point to it, like this actually did, I actually did something, right? This this is satisfaction at another level, this is working for me, this seems to be really working for me. Other things have disappointed me, specifically in my context, the church, 
Christianity. Uh, but these things, these things they feel promising, these pursuits feel worthwhile. Nobody has literally said, I'm looking for salvation in a cabin in the woods. Um, no one has said that. But, or, or for political advocacy, or in political advocacy, or I'm looking for salvation in this workout program. But I think that's really at the heart of the issue. I think that's what, we, what we're looking for, whether we realize it or not. And I understand, because it's easy to look for other sources of salvation, especially when the current source of salvation doesn't feel like it's really working out for people. Our kids have been transparent about this perception with Carmen and me. These people don't seem to have any interest in Jesus. These people aren't involved in the church. These people are good people. They help people. They have huge homes and great vacations. How do you explain that? Right? <laughs> so when your parents are always talking about Jesus, but others who aren't talking about Jesus seem to be doing just fine, thank you very much, it can be easy to think, what is so special about following Jesus? In other words, if everybody can turn their staff into a snake, what's so special about Moses' staff? What's so special about Moses' message? What's so special about Moses' God? Everybody can duplicate what this God supposedly can do. Let's keep reading. Chapter 7, starting in verse 19. I'm going to run quickly through the first three plagues. They're called the plagues or the signs God sends on Egypt. Verse 19. This is the plague of blood. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out. Your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, the reservoirs, they will all turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials. He struck the water of the Nile, and the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, but Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. What's so special about your God, Moses? Our guys can do the same stuff your guys, you, you know, that your God can do. My magicians can do what your God can do. We can turn water to blood. Chapter 8, verse 5. This is the next plague. It's the plague of frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams, the canals, the ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up out of the, or on the land of Egypt. So the miraculous signs of God are being matched. They are being matched play by play uh, by other powers. These signs of God are supposed to help set people free. They're supposed to change minds. They're supposed to change hearts. They're supposed to change lives. The signs of God are supposed to lead to freedom. That is their purpose. They're supposed to enable people to see that God is real and that God is powerful. But the, um, the Egyptian magicians can duplicate all of the signs. 
First sign is the sign of blood. Second sign is the sign of frogs. Here's the third sign or the third plague. Verse 16, Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Verse 18. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's magicians are saying, um, we can't do this. We can't, we can't, um, this is beyond our ability. We don't know how they're doing this one. We can't figure this out. We can't duplicate this. This is beyond us. This is the result of a higher power than we possess. This is the finger of God, which is a phrase Jesus uses about the Holy Spirit later. So the first plague God send on, sends on Egypt is water turning to blood. Egyptians can do that. Second plague is frogs everywhere. Egyptians can duplicate that. Third plague is gnats, tiny little gnats. We've gone from rivers of blood to tiny little gnats. What's the big deal about gnats? Well, they can't do the gnat thing. Okay, they can't do it. They can't, they can't duplicate gnats. Here's the point. Here's the point. Apparently, there is a limit to powers which would try to compete with the power of God. Evidently, there are powers which can duplicate the work of God to a certain point, but not any farther than that. They can go to a certain degree. It can appear that they are doing the same thing, but then they reach their end. The tank runs out of gas. There is a limit. They're, they're finite. They cannot continue to run at the pace of God. There are counterfeit liberators, friends. Counterfeit liberators. Powers which promise freedom they cannot deliver. What we see in Exodus is the story that true freedom comes from God. True freedom comes from God. The message is this. We must refuse counterfeit liberators. Those things which can take us so far, but no farther. We must hold on to the truth that it is God and God alone who can truly set us free. It looks like there are many ways. There are various truths. There's all kinds of life. But the Exodus is the prequel to the main event of the Bible, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life as we just sang together. Amen? Two more quick thoughts to try to push this to a place of application. One thought about truth, one thought about purpose. A few minutes ago, I said that what often seems to work better than our faith practice is some kind of health practice, some kind of advocacy practice, some kind of pursuit of affluence. Question, is there anything inherently wrong with health, advocating for others, or affluence? There isn't, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. It's a false premise, it's a false worldview that leads to this kind of either-or thinking that that 
pits the pursuit of Christ against the pursuit of health, or that says we have to pursue Christ at the expense of helping others, or that says that certain things are spiritual and other things just aren't spiritual. Here's the principle. All truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it ultimately points to God. It ultimately serves God. It ultimately belongs to God. If it's true, it's God's. Truth is never in opposition to God. If it's true, it's God's. Truth is never counter God, nor is love, nor is goodness, nor is beauty. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's not in opposition to God. It is already in submission to God. If it's true. And it will help you mend your broken spirit. And it will help you mend the broken spirits of others. As long as, here's the asterisk, as long as you keep it in order. As long as it's health surrendered to God. As long as it's not health as God. Right? You see the difference? As long as it's financial, the pursuit of financial resources in submission and unto the service of the glory of God, not the pursuit of financial resources as God. We're called to steward our bodies, our abilities, or our influence, and our resources to the glory of God but we're not called to look to our bodies or to look to our abilities or to look to our resources as God. They are great tools. They are lousy saviors. Okay. They're counterfeit liberators. Don't think that pursuing these things as the top priority of your life is going to liberate you. That's a false promise. It won't deliver. It will, at some point, it won't be able to do the gnat thing. It won't. It will run out of gas. They appear to be able to do what God can do, but there's a limit to their power. They can take us so far, but not farther. They can help you to a point, but past that point, they're impotent. All truth is God's truth. Last idea about purpose. St. Augustine writes about this story, about the Egyptian magicians duplicating the signs of God. He says the Egyptian magicians do the same thing as God, but they do it for a different purpose. They do the same thing as God, but they do it for a different purpose. If something seems to be working for you, if you believe something will work for you, and you're at that point where that fascination, that interest, that hope is combining with discouragement, disappointment with the church or with the claims of Christ, then you need to ask yourself, for what purpose will this thing serve What is the purpose of this thing? God performs miracles for the purpose of freedom. Okay? Egypt duplicates the miracles of God for the purpose of bondage. That's a totally different purpose. God's purposes are holy. Your enemy's purposes are unholy. God is for you. Your enemy is against you. Anything the enemy of your soul does that looks good is not actually good. Don't be deceived by that. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. The enemy takes and does not give. If you think you're getting a good deal 
by rebelling against God, you're being deceived. If you think you found a shortcut around the teachings and the way of Christ, it's a trap. It will run out. It will become a dead end. And you'll be worse off than you were before. The enemy promises freedom, but he's a counterfeit liberator. He off, his offers are false. They're not true. He will not deliver. His purposes are deception and bondage. Ask, what is the purpose? Jesus says, obey my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give you life in, the, in fullness. We need to refuse counterfeit liberators. They can take us so far, but not farther. The Egyptian magicians duplicate the, the miracles of God. They turn staffs into snakes. They turn water into blood. They produce millions and millions of frogs, but they can't create gnats from the dust of the ground. And they realize this truth. Did you see that part? They realize this truth and they try to explain it to Pharaoh. They say, this is the finger of God. They're basically saying this. If these people who we have held in slavery for 400 years, if they actually put their faith in this God, there is nothing we can do to stop them. He will set them free. Amen? Amen. Friends, may we, in those dark moments, in those difficult seasons where everything else looks more appealing and promising than the way of Jesus, may we trust that God is the true liberator and he will set us free. Amen. God, please give grace to us, your church. I pray increasingly that we would step into freedom, that we would live as liberated people who are liberating others. Protect us, guard us, we are easily deceived. Help us to see false promises as false and to hold on um, to you. We are prone to wander, as we saw, sung. We feel it. We're prone. We're leaning away. We're prone to leave the God that we love. So take our hearts, Lord, and seal them for your courts above, may we, may we finally and faithfully serve you faithfully uh, as our liberating king. Amen. Amen.